This is a Federal News Network podcast. The national security agencies are leading the way in enrolling their employees in new continuous vetting programs for security clearance. But the IT system that forms the backbone of this background investigation strategy is still under development after a few shaky years. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the latest. And, Justin, we know now that there's demand for this continuous vetting system. What is the status of that system? Right. Well, the IT system is called the National Background Investigation Services, or NBIS is the unwieldy acronym for it. And it's described as a secure end-to-end IT architecture for the government's personnel vetting enterprise. And for anyone who's followed this issue in recent years, the government has moved toward a continuous vetting concept that they want to implement under a trusted workforce 2.0 initiative. This is reforming the personnel vetting process towards something that's more streamlined, that allows government workers to move between agencies and even out of government to industry while maintaining their clearance. Now, the Obama administration directed the Defense Information Systems Agency to start developing NBIS nearly five years ago as part of a secure replacement for the OPM system that was, of course, hacked by hackers widely believed to be associated with the Chinese government in 2015. And continuous vetting here means that instead of having periodic manual rechecks by staff going out and rechecking people, the information related to security about people that's online is automatically watched and monitored by the system, basically, is how it works? Correct. It's it's a system of automated record checks and flags that then a, a human being would have to go in and check to see if it's legitimate or not. So right. this idea has percolated over the past few years after this massive background investigations backlog really built up. That's when government officials said, hey, we need a new process for doing this. So during that crisis, they began, they began formulating this initiative called Trusted Workforce 2.0. And of course, a major part of that initiative is the continuous vetting model that we just discussed. So rather than having a new background investigation every five or 10 years, the concept relies on the automated technology to constantly monitor the workforce. So NBIS will be this IT system that not only logs background investigations, information, and cases, but it does a lot of those automated record checks. A lot of that monitoring raises those red flags. But the system has faced some major delays. The Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, which now conducts the vast majority of background investigations across government, they took over NBIS from DISA last October. Bill Lietzow, director of DCSA, says he's just starting to get the system on track. Early on, we realized this thing is not on track to provide the technological capability that the agency needs to implement what the policymakers have put in place. And you could have all the greatest policy in the world and people work for years to come up with this wonderful Trusted Workforce 2.0. In this case, without that technological capability, you just can't get there. And we weren't really on track to deliver. We, Like I said, we've rebaselined it, but there's a heck of a lot of work that's got to be done by NBIS. That was Bill Lietzow, director of the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. So he says, again, a heck of a lot of work to be done by NBIS. And so 
What is the current status? Where do things stand with respect to budgets and uh, contractors? Well, I went back and looked through the budget documents for when DISA was in charge of the program, and, and they spent about $216 million over the course of about four years before they handed it off to DCSA. Now, as Bill Lietzow mentioned, they rebaselined the program and they're spending more money on it. They just got $110 million for the program in this fiscal year. They're requesting an additional $123 million for fiscal year 2022. Now, DISA had initially projected NBIS would reach initial operational capability by 2020. That has obviously not happened, and DCSA is trying to get that back on track, as Mr. Lietzow mentioned. The delays also mean DCSA has to continue operating those legacy systems that they inherited from OPM. But despite the delays, Lietzow says they have made progress since rebaselining the system in October. Since it's rebaselining, Jeff Smith, who now reports to me as the executive program manager of that, his team has hit four milestones for the NBIS development on time, on schedule. Really the first time they've done that since uh, the program's inception. And by the way, is there a contractor on this whole thing. Right. So Perspecta got the initial contract for the National Background Investigative Services, and they, of course, were just bought up by Periton in May. So they're the contractor on the program. And as Mr. Lietzow mentioned, they're rebaselining and trying to get it back on track. Still, they don't project Invis will reach initial operational capability for processing actual background investigations until the summer of 2022. All right. So how has this affected agencies that are trying to move forward under this Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative with continuous vetting. They can't really get on their people there if there's no continuous vetting, right? Well, they've moved forward with some interim capabilities. They're going through Trusted Workforce 2.0 in phases. So they say they're at Trusted Workforce 1.25 right now, moving to Trusted Workforce 1.5. They're sure it's not 1.27. They have a lot of phases. And (laughs) so in January, OPM released a personnel core vetting doctrine, and that lays out a lot of the principles under Trusted Workforce 2.0. Mark Fraunfelter is Assistant Director for the Special Security Directorate at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And that kind of gave departments and agencies the heads up to start pivoting into an implementation phase. And that implementation phase, despite COVID, has progressed very well. And departments and agencies are quickly joining the fight of this reform effort. And soon you'll also see a draft implementation strategy. And you'll also hear about more specific draft policies coming out this calendar year. That was Mark Fraunfelter with the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. So as he mentioned, agencies are implementing this program. In fact, the national security agencies have 3.8 million people enrolled in this um, continuous vetting program already. That's both government and contractors. That represents about 90 percent of the national security community. And they're aiming to get to 100 percent by the end of this fiscal year. So as I mentioned, DCSA is using some interim IT capabilities to do those automated record checks and other flags under the continuous vetting model. Lietzow says the pandemic has really forced DCSA, like many organizations, to evolve. And there's also a paperwork aspect to all of this, too, isn't there? Well, they've got this Iron Mountain up in Boyers, Pennsylvania, and that's where OPM had stored these security clearance files for a very long time. Here's Lietzow again. But I remember visiting Boyers, Pennsylvania over a year ago and and being introduced to rows of file cabinets with paper files. It looked like the Indiana Jones movie at the end, the Raiders of the Lost Ark of this 
you know, government warehouse full of boxes. Just visited Boyers a couple weeks ago. Those files are all gone. Everything's now electronic. Frankly, COVID helped us to be able to do that. And that's just one area where we were able to kind of modernize. Again, that's Bill Lietzow with the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. All right. So then the best way to characterize this whole modernization of security background checks is the system is partway functional. They're putting the pedal to the metal there and getting rid of paperwork at the same time. It's kind of the cliche. They're flying the airplane while they're still building it. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. 
And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. 
And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. Not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.